they rested the litter gently on the floor. Riverwind built up the fire as his wife brought cool water. Lorana hovered over Tika. Where did they find her? Lying on the bank of the stream, said Goldmoon. Was Tass with her? She was alone, no sign of the kender. Tika moaned in pain and stirred restlessly. Her eyes were wide open and hectically brilliant, but she saw only her feverish world. When Goldmoon bent over her, Tika screamed and began to strike her savagely with her fists. It took Riverwind and the two plainsmen to hold her down, and even then she tried to struggle to free herself. What's the matter with her? Lorana asked, alarmed. Look at those scratches. She's been attacked by some sort of wild animal, Goldmoon answered, bathing Tika's forehead in cool water. A bear or a mountain lion, maybe. No, said Riverwind. Draconian. His wife raised her head, looking at him in consternation. How can you tell? Riverwind pointed to several smears of gray ash on Tika's leather armor. The claw marks are only on her arms and legs, whereas a wild beast would have left its marks all over her body. The draconian was trying to subdue her, to rape her. Lorana shuddered. Riverwind looked very grim, and his wife deeply troubled. What's the matter? Lorana asked. She'll be all right, won't she? You can heal her. Yes, Lorana, yes, said Goldmoon reassuringly. Leave her with me, all of you. She smoothed Tika's red curls, damp with sweat, and placed her hand on the medallion of Misakal she wore around her neck. You should call a meeting of the council, husband. I need to talk to Tika first. Goldmoon hesitated, then said, Very well. I will summon you when she is awake but only talk to her for a little while. She is in need of food and rest. Let me stay, Lorana pleaded. This is my fault. Goldmoon shook her head. You need to go find Elistan. Lorana didn't understand, but she could see that both were worried over something. Lorana accompanied the chieftain out of the shelter. What is it? What's wrong? Tika was attacked by a draconian, Riverwind said. The attack must have occurred here or near here. Lorana suddenly understood the terrible implications. The gods have mercy on us. That means our enemies have found a way into the valley. Goldmoon was right. I must tell Elistan. Do so quietly, Riverwind cautioned. Bring him back with you. Say nothing to anyone else, not yet. We don't want to start a panic. No, of course not, Lorana said, and hastened off. People were gathered at a respectful distance outside the cave, waiting for news. Tika, with her ready laughter and her cheerful disposition, was a favorite of nearly everyone in the camp, not counting the high theocrat. Marita stopped Lorana as she left the cave, asking in concern how Tika was doing. Lorana saw that it would be easier to make a general announcement. She's very sick right now, but Gold Moon is with her, and she will recover. Lorana told the crowd. She needs rest and quiet. What happened to her? asked Marita. We won't know until she wakes up, Lorana hedged, and managing to extricate herself, she went off in search of Elistan. She met him on his way to Goldmoon. I heard about Tika, he said. How is she? She will be well, thank the gods, said Lorana. Riverwind asks to speak to you. Elistan looked at her searchingly. He saw the worry and fear in her face, and he was about to ask her what was wrong, 
then thought better of it. I will come at once. They returned to find a few people still lingering outside the cave. Lorana assured them once more that Tika was going to be fine, and added that the best thing they could do to help her was to include her in their prayers. Riverwind stood at the cave entrance. As Lorana and Elistan came up to speak to him, Goldmoon drew aside the blanket and bade them come in. Her fever has broken and her wounds are healing, but she is still shaken from her ordeal. She wants to speak to you, though. She insists on it. Tika lay wrapped in blankets near the fire. She was still so pale that her freckles, which were the bane of her existence, stood out in stark contrast to her white skin. Yet she tried to sit up when the others entered. Riverwind, I have to talk to you, she said urgently, reaching out a trembling hand. Please, listen to me. So I shall, said Riverwind, kneeling beside her. But you must drink some of this broth first, and then lie down, or my wife will throw us both out into the cold. Tika drank the broth, and some color came back to her face. Lorana knelt down beside her. I was so worried about you. I'm sorry, Tika said remorsefully. Gold Moon tells me that everyone was out looking for Tass and me. I never meant. I didn't think. She gave a deep sigh and set the bowl down. Her face took on a look of resolve. As it turned out, it was a good thing that we went. Wait a moment, said Riverwind. Before you tell your tale, where is the kender? Is Tasselhoff safe? As safe as can be, I suppose, said Tika bleakly. He's with Raislin, Caraman, and Sturm, if you can call him Sturm anymore. Seeing their look of concern, Tika sighed. I'll start from the beginning. She told her story, how she'd decided to go after Caraman to try to talk some sense into him. It was stupid, I know that now, she added ruefully. How she and Tass entered the tunnel that went underneath the mountain, how they came out at the other end of the tunnel to find themselves in Skullcap with a dead dragon, hordes of draconians, and Gralin, Prince of Thorbarden, formerly Sturm Brightblade. The helm he put on was cursed or enchanted or something— I didn't understand, and Raislin wouldn't talk about it, Tika said. Elistan looked grave, Riverwind doubtful, and Goldmoon anxious. She placed a cool cloth on Tika's forehead and said she should rest. Tika took away the cloth. I know you don't believe me. I wouldn't believe me either, except I saw it for myself. I even talked to this, this Prince Grolin. Caraman said the helm was waiting for someone to come along and put it on so that it could force the person to go to Thorbarton to tell the king that the battle was lost. Three hundred years too late, said Lorana softly. But now, you see, they've found the way to get inside Thorbarton, said Tika. This Prince Gralin is going to lead them there. All of them exchanged glances. Riverwind shook his head. The plainsman had an inherent distrust of magic, and this sounded too bizarre to be believed. He fixed on the more immediate threat. You heard the draconians say that an army was coming, coming here, to the valley. Yes, that's why I came back, to warn you. Why didn't Caraman come with you? Riverwind asked in stern disapproval. Why did he send you back alone? Caraman wanted to come, Tika said, stoutly defending him. I told him not to. I told him he should stay with Sturm, his brother, and Tass. 
What with Sturm thinking he's a dwarf and all, I told him I could manage fine on my own, and I did. Her eyes hardened, her fists clenched. I killed that monster when it attacked me. I killed it dead. She saw their troubled expressions, and she burst into tears. Carmen didn't know there was a draconian hiding in that passage. No one knew. She collapsed back onto her pallet, sobbing. She must rest now, said Goldmoon firmly. I think you know all you need to know, husband. She ushered them outside and returned to hold Tika in her arms, letting her have her cry out. What do we do, revered son? Riverwind asked. The decision is yours, Elistan replied. Tannis placed you in charge. Riverwind sighed deeply and gazed moodily to the south. If you believe Tika's story. Of course we believe her, Lorana interjected angrily. She risked her life to carry us this warning. Hedrick and the others won't, Riverwind observed. Lorana fell silent. He was right, of course. The high theocrat and his cronies didn't want to leave, and they would find any excuse to remain. She could almost hear Hedrick telling the people how Tika was not to be trusted. A former thief, now a barmaid, and the gods knew what else. She had run off to be with her lover and made up this tale to cover her sins. Few people like Hedrick, Lorana pointed out, and they do like Tika. What is more important, added Elistan, is that they like and admire you, Riverwind. If you tell the people danger is coming and they must leave, they will listen. Do you think we should leave? Lorana asked. Yes, Riverwind said readily. I have thought that since the day the dragon flew over us. We should travel south before the heavy snows block the mountain passes. This valley is no longer a safe haven. Tika's story simply confirms what I have long feared. He paused, then said quietly, But what if I am wrong? Such a journey is fraught with uncertainty and danger. What if we reach Thorbarden and find the gates closed? Worse still, what if we never find Thorbarden at all? We could wander about the mountains until we drop from hunger and perish from the cold. I'm asking the people to leave a place of safety and walk headlong into danger. That makes no sense. You just said that this wasn't a place of safety, Elistan observed. Ever since the dragon came, the people have been uneasy, afraid. They know that dragons keep watch on us, though we can't see them. The burden is a heavy one, Riverwind said. The lives of hundreds are in my care. Not in your care alone, my friend, Elistan told him gently. Paladine is with you. Take your fears and worries to the god. Will he give me a sign, revered son? Will the god tell me what to do? The god will never tell you what to do, Elistan said. The god will grant you the wisdom to make the right decision and the strength to carry it through. Wisdom, Riverwind smiled and shook his head. I am not one of the wise. I was a shepherd. As a shepherd, you used your skills and instincts to keep your flock safe from the wolf. That is the wisdom Paladine has given you, the wisdom on which you must rely. Riverwind thought this over. Summon the people for a meeting at noontime, he said at last. I will announce my decision then. As they were leaving, Lorana glanced back at Riverwind over her shoulder. 
He was walking toward the grotto, where they had built a small altar to honor the gods. He is a good man. His faith is strong and steadfast, she said. Tanis chose wisely. I wish he... She stopped talking. She hadn't meant to speak her thoughts aloud. You wish what, my dear? Elistan asked. I wish Tanis could find the same faith, Lorana said at last. He does not believe in the gods. Tanis will not find faith, said Elistan, smiling. I think it more likely that faith will find him, much as faith found me. I don't understand. I'm not sure I do either, Elistan admitted. My heart is troubled about Tanis, yet Paladine assures me that I may safely rest those troubles in his hands. I hope his hands are very large, said Lorana, sighing. As large as heaven, said Elistan. If Riverwind spoke to Paladine, he did not seem to have found much ease or solace in his communion with the god. His face was dark and grim as he took his place at the front of the multitude. His words were not comforting or reassuring. He told the people of Tika's journey. He said the knight, Sturm Brightblade, had discovered the way to Thorbarden. He was vague as to details. Riverwind told them Tika had overheard Draconians talking about an army preparing for an assault on the valley, and how she had been attacked by a Draconian on her way back to warn them. Hederick pursed his lips and rolled his eyes and gave a snort. Tika Whalen is a nice girl, but, as some of you will recall, she used to be a barmaid. I believe her, Riverwind said, and his firm tones silenced even Hederick, at least temporarily. I believe that this valley, once a haven of peace, may soon become a battleground. If we are attacked here, we have no place to run to, no refuge. We will be trapped like rats to be captured or slaughtered. The gods have sent us this warning. We do wrong to ignore it. I propose that we leave in the next few days, travel south to Thorbarden, there to meet our friends. Come now, be reasonable, said Hedrick. He turned to the crowd, raising his hands for silence. Don't you people find it strange that the gods chose to deliver this warning to a barmaid instead of someone honored and respected, such as yourself? Riverwind said. I was going to say such as revered son Elistan, said Hederick humbly. But yes, I think the gods might also use me as their vessel. If they wanted to store ale, perhaps, said Gilthanus in Lorana's ear. Hush, brother, she scolded him. This is serious. Of course it is, but they won't listen to Riverwind. He's an outsider, as are we. He glanced at Lorana. You know, for the first time in my life I begin to understand how alone and isolated Tanis must have felt when he lived among us. I don't feel alone among these people, Lorana protested. Of course not, Gilthanus answered, frowning. You have Elistan. Oh, Gil, not you too, began Lorana. But he had walked off, going over to stand with the plainsmen. They said nothing to the elf, but silently and respectfully moved to make room for him among their ranks, outsiders together. Lorana should have gone after him, but she was angry at him, at Tanis, at Tika, at everyone who seemed willfully determined to misconstrue her relationship with Elistan. She worked for Elistan, 
much as she had worked for her father, acting as a diplomat and intermediary. She had a gift for talking to people, a gift for soothing people, helping them work through anger and fear to see reason. She and Elistan were a good team. There was nothing romantic about it. He was, if anything, like a father to her, or a brother. She looked at Gilthanus, and her anger softened to remorse. The two of them had once been very close. She had barely spoken to Gilthanus since she had started working with Elistan. Now it went back further than that, since Tanis had once more entered her life. Maybe it wasn't even Tanis, she reflected. Her brother did not approve of her relationship with the half-elf any more now than he'd done in the past, but it was her relationship with all humans that stuck in his craw. She should keep herself aloof from them, hold herself apart. Like their father, Gilthanus was angry over the fact that the gods had seen fit to use humans to herald their return. The gods should have come to the elves, who were, after all, the chosen people. It was the humans whose transgressions had called down the wrath of the gods on the world. We are the good children, said Lorana to herself. We should not have been punished. But were we really good, or were we just never caught? Elves had no such doubts. Elves were certain of their place in the universe. Humans, on the other hand, were always doubting, always seeking, always questioning. Lorana liked that about humans. She did not feel so alone with her doubts. The thought occurred to her that she'd never tried to explain this to Gilthanus. She resolved to do so, help him understand. She looked over at him and smiled to show that she wasn't angry. He saw her, but deliberately avoided meeting her eyes. Lorana sighed and brought her attention back to the meeting. The arguing continued. Elistan supported Riverwind, as did Marita. We all of us saw the dragon. Marita told them, with that fiend Verminard on its back. Now one of our own has been attacked here in this valley, or as near this valley as makes no difference. If that isn't a sign that we are no longer safe, I don't know what is. Yet Hedrick's arguments were also persuasive, weighted with the fact that the people were in no danger now, but would be if they left the safety and shelter of caves to venture into the wilds, as was proven by the attack on Tika. Riverwind could not argue against any of this. The burden lay on his heart, and he acknowledged it simply and openly. If we go, some or all of us may die, he said, but I believe that if we stay and do nothing, if we ignore Tika's warning, we will fall victim to a cruel and brutal enemy. He was certain, at least, of his own people joining him. The plainsmen were united in their belief that trouble was coming, and they had at last agreed, even the Kwaikiri, to accept Riverwind as their chief. Their quiet confidence gave him confidence, as did his time spent with the god. During his prayers, Riverwind had heard no immortal voice making promises. He'd felt no soothing touch of an immortal hand, but he had come away from the altar with the comforting knowledge that he did not walk alone. He was about to say more when there was a stir at the entryway. Goldmoon appeared, guiding Tika's faltering steps. She insisted on coming, Goldmoon said. I urged her to rest, but she said she had to speak for herself. People murmured softly in sympathy. The scratches on her arm had healed, but they were still visible. Pale and weak from the effects of the fever, Tika put aside Goldmoon's hand and stood on her own to have her say. 
I just want to remind all of you who it was who freed you from Pax Tharkas, Tika told them, who saved you from slavery and death. It wasn't him, the high theocrat, she cast a scathing glance at Hederick. It was Tannis Half-Elven and Flint Fireforge, and they've gone to try to find Thorbarden. It was Sturm Brightblade, Karaman Majir, and Raistlin Majir, and they've gone at great peril to Skullcap, where they've found a way to enter Thorbarden. It was Riverwind and Goldmoon who showed you how to survive and healed your hurts. They didn't have to do this, any of them. They could have gone off long ago, returned to their homeland. But they didn't. They stayed here and risked their lives to help you. I know it will be hard to leave, but... But I just want you to think about that. Many did think about it and made their arguments accordingly, speaking out in favor of departing. Others were not so certain. Riverwind allowed the discussion to flow freely, but when the same arguments were being presented time and again, he called a halt. My mind is made up. Each of you must do the same. My wife and I, and those who are going with us, should be ready to depart the day after tomorrow with the first light. He paused a moment, then added, The way will be difficult and dangerous, and I cannot promise you that we will find safe haven in Thorbarden, or anywhere in this world for that matter. I can promise you one thing. I pledge my life to you. I will do all I can to stand between you and darkness. I will fight to defend you until the last breath leaves my body. He left the meeting hall amid silence. His people and Gilthanus accompanied him. Tika insisted on going back to her own cave, saying she would rest better in her bed. The people gathered around Elistan, seeking his advice and reassurance. Many wanted him to make their decisions for them, should they stay or go. This he would not do but he insisted that each person must make up his or her own mind. He advised them repeatedly to take their cares and concerns to the gods, and he was gratified to see some go to the altar. Others, however, stalked off in a huff, demanding to know what good were gods who could not tell them what to do. Lorana remained by his side, patiently assisting him, offering her own reassurances and advice. When the last person left, she felt utterly drained and dejected. I never understood before how anyone could knowingly worship an evil god. Now I do, she said to Elistan. If you were a cleric of Tachesis, you would promise these people everything they ever wanted. Your promises would come at a terrible price, and they would not be kept, but that wouldn't matter. People refuse to take responsibility for their own lives. They want someone to tell them what to do, and they want someone to blame when it all goes wrong. We are in the early days yet of the gods' return, Lorana, said Elistan. Our people are like blind men who can suddenly see again. The light blinds them as much or more than the darkness. Give them time. Time. The one thing we don't have, Lorana said with a sigh. In the end, most of the people decided to go with Riverwind. The terror of the dragons flying over their camp did as much to convince them to leave as any of his arguments. Hederick and his followers, however, let it be known that they plan to stay. We will be here waiting to welcome those who turn back, Hederick announced, adding in ominous tones, those who survive. 
Riverwind worked tirelessly that day and long into the night and all the next day, answering questions, assisting people to decide what to take, helping them pack. The refugees had made the hard journey from Pax Tharkis to the valley, and they knew already what they would need for the road. Even little children made up their small bundles. Riverwind could not sleep the night before the departure. He lay awake, staring into the darkness, doubting himself, doubting his decision, until Goldmoon took him in her arms. He kissed her and held her, and matching his breathing to hers, he fell asleep. Riverwind was up before dawn. The people emerged from their caves in the half-darkness, greeting friends or scolding children who viewed this departure as a holiday and were behaving with untoward exuberance. Hederick made an appearance, sighing a great deal and bidding people farewell with a mournful air, as though he could already see them dead on the trail. Riverwind could sense a few people starting to waver in their decisions, and he was determined to set off the moment there was the faintest light in the sky, before they had a chance to change their minds. His scouts had picked up Tannis's blazed trail, and they reported that the first part of the journey would be easy. That would help boost people's spirits and give them confidence. The day dawned bright and sunny. Just before they started, scouts returned with news that the dwarf's trail led to a hitherto unnoticed pass between the mountains. Riverwind studied the crude map Flint had drawn up for him, and the scouts agreed that his map matched with what they had found. Looking at the map, Riverwind recalled the dwarf's last enigmatic command, Bring along pickaxes. Though this meant an added burden for some, he followed the dwarf's order. The people cheered at news that a pass had been discovered, taking it for a good omen for the future. The refugees set forth quietly, without undue fuss or bother. Their harsh lives had inured them to hardship. They were accustomed to physical exertion. They had walked miles to reach this place, and they were prepared to walk many more miles. They were in good health. Misako had healed their sick. Even Tika was almost back to normal. Lorana noted that her friend was unusually somber and silent, and chose to walk by herself, eschewing any offer of company. The wounds of the body had healed, the wounds of the heart were deeper, and not even a goddess could remedy those. The sun shone, the day grew warm, with just enough chill in the air to keep the exertion of hiking from overheating anyone. Marita started singing a marching song, and soon everyone joined in. The refugees made good time trudging along the trail at a steady pace. Riverwind felt his burden ease. That night, after the refugees' departure, Hederick the High Theocrat sat alone in his cave. He had spent the day regaling those of his followers who had chosen to stay with him with some of his best speeches. Fewer had chosen to stay than he'd expected, and they had heard all Hederick's harangues before. As darkness fell, they made some excuse to slip away, either going to their beds or gathering by the firelight to play black dots, a gambling game in which white tiles marked with black dots are arranged in various number patterns. Since the high theocrat had laid down a strict injunction against wagering, the men thought it best to keep their game secret. Hatterick found himself alone without an audience. The night was quiet, unbelievably quiet. He was accustomed to the noise and bustle of the campsite, Accustomed to walking around the camp, being important, all that was gone now. Though he had taken care not to show it, he was irate that so few people had trusted him enough to stay, 
choosing instead to go off into the unknown with a crude, uneducated savage. Hedrick told himself they would be sorry. Now that he was alone with time to think, he was the one who was sorry. He sat in the darkness and wondered uneasily what would happen to him if that silly barmaid should turn out to be right. 17. No shadows. Too many shadows. A dwarf's dreams. The same sunshine that warmed the hearts and spirits of the refugees shone in the sky above Caraman, Raceland, Sturm, and Tass. The sun brought no warmth or cheer to any of these four, however. They walked a land barren and wasted, a devastated land, bleak, empty, and desolate. They walked the plains of Dergoth. They had all thought nothing could be worse than wading through the swamp surrounding Skullcap, the water stank of rot and decay. They had no idea what sort of creatures could live beneath the slime-covered water, but something did. They could tell by the ripples on the surface or sudden dartings around their feet that they had disturbed some species of swampy denizen. They had to keep close together or lose sight of each other in the thick mists. They were forced to move slowly with a shuffling gait to avoid snags and dead branches hidden beneath the water. Fortunately, the swamp was not large, and they soon left it, emerging from the murk onto ground that was dry, flat, and hard. The mists grasped at them with wispy fingers, but a cold wind soon blew them apart. They could see the sun again, and they thought well of themselves, believing they'd survived the worst. Sturm pointed to a distant mountain range. Beneath that peak known as Cloudseeker lies Thorbarden, Prince Gralin told them and Raceland cast Caraman a triumphant look. After a short rest, they continued on, entering the plains of Dergoth. Soon each one of them began to wish he was somewhere else, even back in the foul miasma they had just left. At least the swamp was alive. The life within was green and slimy, scaly and sinuous, creepy and slithering, but it was life. Death ruled the plains of Dergoth. Nothing lived here anymore. Once there had been grasslands and forest populated by birds and animals. Three hundred years ago, this had been a battlefield, with dwarf battling dwarf in bitter contest. The field had been soaked in blood, the deer slaughtered, the birds fled. The grass was trampled, and trees cut down to make funeral beers on which to burn the corpses. Still, life remained. The trees would have grown back, the grass would have flourished, the birds and animals returned. Then came the horrific blast that brought down a mighty fortress and killed all those on both sides. The blast destroyed all living things, tearing life apart with such fury that no little bit of it survived. No trees, no grass, no beasts, no bugs, no lichen, no moss, nothing but death. Grotesque piles of twisted, blackened, melted armor and mounds of ash littered the fire-swept ground, all that was left of two great armies whose struggles had ended in a single terrible moment as the fire devoured their flesh, boiled their blood, and consumed them utterly. The plains of Dergoth, standing between Skullcap and Thorbarden, were plains of despair. The sun shone in the blue sky, but its light was cold, like the light of the faraway stars, and held no warmth for any of those forced to cross this dread place that was so horrible it even quenched the spirits of the kender. Tasselhoff was marching along, staring down at his ash-covered boots, 
for staring at his boots was better than looking ahead and seeing nothing except nothing, when he noticed something odd. He looked up at the sky and back down at the ground, and then said in a tense voice, Caraman, I've lost my shadow. Caraman heard the kender, but he pretended he hadn't. He had enough to do worrying about his brother. Raceland was having a difficult time of it. Whatever strange energy had sustained and strengthened him on the trip to Skullcap appeared to have deserted him at their departure. The trip through the swamp had left him exhausted. He walked slowly, leaning on his staff, every step seeming to cost him an effort. He refused to stop to rest, however. He insisted that they continue their journey, pointing out that Prince Grawlin would not allow them to stop, which was probably true. Caraman was constantly having to rein in Sturm, who marched along at a rapid pace, his gaze fixed on the mountains, or he would have left the slow-moving mage far behind. Look, Caraman, you've lost yours, too, said Tass, relieved. I don't feel so bad. Lost what? Caraman asked, only half listening. Your shadow, Tass said, pointing. It is probably near noontime, returned Caraman wearily. You can't see your shadow when the sun's directly overhead. That's what I thought, said Tass. But look at the sun. It's almost on the horizon. Only a couple of hours till dark. Nope, he sighed. Our shadows are gone. Caraman, feeling silly, actually turned to look for his shadow. Tass was right. The sun was before him, but no shadow stretched out behind him. He could not even see his footprints, which should have shown up clearly in the fine gray ash. He had the terrible feeling suddenly that he'd ceased to exist. We walk a land of death. The living do not belong here, Raceland said, his voice barely above a whisper. We cast no shadows. We leave no marks. Caraman shuddered. I hate this place. He balefully eyed Sturm, who had stopped to wait for them and was tapping his foot impatiently. Raced, what if that accursed helm he's wearing is leading us into a death trap? Maybe we should turn back. Raceland thought longingly of returning to Skullcap. He could not account for it, but while he'd been there, he'd felt strong and healthy, almost whole again. Out here he had to force himself to take each step when what he longed to do was to drop down to the ash-gray ground and sleep in the dust of the dead. He coughed, shook his head, and made a feeble gesture toward the night. Caraman understood. Sturm, under the influence of the helm, was bound to go to Thorbarden. If they turned back, he would go on without them. Raceland plucked at Caraman's sleeve. We must keep moving, he gasped. We must not find ourselves benighted in this terrible place. Amen to that, brother, said Caraman feelingly. He placed his strong arm supportively under his twin's arm, aiding his faltering footsteps, and caught up with Sturm. I hope I get my shadow back, said Tasselhoff, trailing behind. I was fond of it. It used to go everywhere with me. They slogged on. Tannis could see his shadow lengthening, sliding across the trail. Only a few hours of daylight left. They had descended the mountain, moving rapidly on the old dwarven road that led down among the pine trees. A few more miles, and they would reach the forest. A bed of pine needles sounded very good after the uncomfortable and cheerless nights on the mountain, with rock for a mattress and a boulder for a pillow. I smell smoke, said Flint, coming to a sudden halt. 
Tannis sniffed the air. He, too, smelled smoke. He had not noticed it particularly. Back in camp, the smell of smoke from the cook fires had been pervasive. He was tired from walking all day and didn't fully appreciate what this might mean. When he did, he lifted his head and searched the sky. There it is, he said, spotting a few tendrils of black drifting up out of the pine trees not far from them. He eyed the smoke. Maybe it's a forest fire. Flint shook his head. It smells like burnt meat. He scowled and cast the smoke a gloom-ridden glance from beneath his heavy brows. Nah, it's no forest fire. He jabbed the pickaxe into the ground and stated dourly, It's a gully dwarf. That's the village I was telling you about. He glanced about. I should have recognized where we were, but I've not come at it from this direction before. I've been wondering, is this the village where you were held prisoner? Flint gave an explosive snort. His face went very red, as if I would go near that place in a hundred thousand years. No, of course not, said Tannis, hiding his smile. He changed the subject. We've always encountered gully dwarves in cities before. Seems strange to find them living out here in the wilds. They're waiting for the gates to open, said Flint. Tannis stared at the dwarf in perplexity. How long have they been here? Three hundred years. Flint waved his hand. You'll find nests of them all over these parts. The day the gates closed, shutting them out, the gully dwarf squatted in front of the mountain and waited, certain the gate would open again. They're still waiting. At least this proves gully dwarves are optimists, Tannis remarked. He turned from the road onto a trail that veered off in the direction of the smoke. Where do you think you're going? Flint demanded, standing stock still. To talk to them. Tannis replied. Flint grunted. The Kender's not about, so you're missing your daily dose of foolishness for the week. Gully dwarves have a knack for locating that which is hidden, Tannis returned. As we saw in Zaxaroth, they worm their way into secret passages and tunnels. Who knows? They may have discovered some way inside the mountain. If so, why are they living outside it? Flint asked, but he trudged along after his friend. Maybe they don't know what they've found. Flint shook his head. Even if they have found the way into Thorbarden, you'll never make sense of what they tell you. And don't let the wretches talk you into staying for supper. He wrinkled his nose. Whew, what a stink. Not even roast rat smells as bad as this. The smoke was thick here and the stench particularly foul. If it was a cook fire, Tannis couldn't imagine what it was the gully dwarves were cooking. Don't worry he said, and covered his nose and mouth with his hand, trying to breathe as little as possible. The trail brought them to a break in the trees. Here Flint and Tannis stopped abruptly, gazing in grim silence at the terrible scene. Every building had been set ablaze, every gully dwarf slaughtered, their bodies burned. All that was left were charred skeletons and smoldering lumps of blackened flesh. Not roasted rat, said Flint gruffly. Roasted gully dwarf. Tying rags over their noses and mouths, their eyes stinging from the smoke, Tannis and Flint walked through the destroyed village, searching for any who might still be alive. Their search proved hopeless. Whoever had done this had struck swiftly and ruthlessly. Gully dwarves, noted cowards, had been caught flat-footed, apparently, without any time to flee. They had been cut down where they stood, 
Some of the bodies had gaping holes in them. Some were hacked to pieces. Others had half-burned arrow shafts sticking out from between their ribs. Some bore no wounds at all, but were dead just the same. Foul magic was at work here, said Tannis grimly. That's not all that was at work. Flint reached down and gingerly picked up the hilt of a broken sword lying beside the body of a gully dwarf who had been wearing an overturned soup kettle on his head. The improvised helm had saved his life for a short while, perhaps, long enough for him to have made it to the very edge of camp before his attacker caught him and made him pay for breaking the sword. The gully dwarf, the kettle still on his head, lay in a twisted heap, his neck broken. Draconian, said Flint, eyeing the sword. Though he had only half of it, he could easily identify the strange serrated blades used by the servants of the Queen of Darkness. So they're on this side of the mountain, said Tannis grimly. Maybe they're out there watching us right now, said Flint, and he dropped the broken sword and drew his battle axe. Tannis drew his sword from its sheath, and both of them stared hard into the shadows. The sun's last rays were sinking behind the mountains. Already it was dark beneath the pine trees. The shadows of coming night, mingled with the smoke, made seeing anything difficult. There's nothing more we can do for these poor wretches, said Tannis. Let's get out of here. Agreed, said Flint, but then both froze. Did you hear that? Tannis asked softly. He could barely see Flint in the gloom. The dwarf moved closer, put his back to Tannis's back, and whispered, Sounds like armor rattling, something big sneaking through the trees. Tannis recalled the enormous draconians with their large wingspan, their heavy limbs encased in plate armor and chain mail. He could picture the monsters trying to slink through the pines, rustling the undergrowth, stepping on dry leaves and breaking branches, exactly the sounds they were hearing. Suddenly the noise ceased. They've seen us, Flint hissed. Feeling vulnerable and exposed out in the open, Tannis was tempted to tell Flint to make a run for the trees. He restrained himself. With the dusk and the smoke, whatever was out there might have heard them, but not yet seen them. If they ran, they would draw attention to themselves, give away their location. Don't move, Tannis cautioned. Wait! The enemy in the forest had the same idea, apparently. They heard no more sounds of movement, but they knew it was still out there also waiting. Bugger this, muttered Flint. We can't stand here all night. Before Tannis could stop him, the dwarf raised his voice. Lizard slime! Quit skulking about and come out and fight. They heard a yelp, quickly stifled. Then a voice said cautiously, Flint, is that you? Flint lowered his sword. Caraman, he called out. And me, Flint, cried a voice. Tasselhoff. Flint groaned and shook his head. There was a great crashing noise in the forest. Torches flared and Caraman emerged from the trees, half carrying Raceland, who could barely walk. Tasselhoff came running toward them, leading Sturm by the hand, tugging him along. Wait until you see who I found, Tass cried. Tannis and Flint stared at the knight, wearing the strange helm that was much too big for him. Tannis walked over to embrace Sturm. The knight drew back, bowed, then stood aloof, his gaze fixed on Flint, and it was not friendly. He doesn't know you, Tannis, said Tasselhoff, barely able to contain his excitement. He doesn't know any of us. He didn't get hit on the head again, did he? Tannis asked, turning to Caraman. No, he's enchanted. Tannis glanced at Raceland. Not me, 
said the mage, sinking down wearily onto a tree stump that had escaped the fire. It was the knight's own doing. It's a long story, Tannis. What happened here? Caraman asked, looking grimly at the destruction of the village. Draconians, said Tannis. The monsters have crossed the mountain, apparently. Yeah, we ran into some draconians ourselves, said Caraman. Back in Skullcap. Do you think they're still around? We haven't seen any. So you managed to reach the fortress? Tannis asked. Yeah, and are we ever glad to be out of that horrible place and off those accursed plains? He gave a jerk of his head in the direction from which they'd come. How did you find us? Raceland coughed and glanced at his brother. Caraman's face flushed red. He shuffled his big feet. He thought he smelled food, Raceland said caustically. Caraman gave a sheepish grin and shrugged. Flint, meanwhile, had been staring at Sturm and at Tasselhoff, who was wriggling with suppressed delight. What's wrong with Sturm? Flint asked. Why is he glaring at me like that? Where'd he get that helm? And why is he wearing it? It doesn't fit him. The helm is... Flint drew closer, squinting to see the helm in the twilight. It's dwarven. He's not Sturm, Tasselhoff burst out. He's Prince Grawlin from under the mountain. Isn't it wonderful, Flint? Sturm thinks he's a dwarf. Just ask him. Flint's mouth gaped, then his jaw shut with a snap. I don't believe it. He walked up to the knight. Here now, Sturm. I won't be made sport of. Sturm clapped his hand to the hilt of his sword. His blue eyes beneath the helm were cold and hard. He said something in Dwarven, stumbling over the words, as though his tongue had trouble forming them. But there was no mistaking the language. Flint stood staring, dumbfounded. What'd he say? Tass asked. Keep your distance, hill dwarf scum, Flint translated or words to that effect. The dwarf glowered around at Caraman and particularly Raceland. Someone had better tell me what's going on. It was the knight's own fault, Raceland repeated, giving Flint a cold look. I had nothing to do with it. I warned him the helm was magical and he should leave it alone. He refused to listen. He put the helm on and this is the result. He believes he is Prince Grawlin, whoever that is. A prince of Thorbarden, said Flint, one of the three sons of King Duncan. Grawlin lived over three hundred years ago. Not entirely trusting Raceland, he drew near to inspect the helm. Truly, it is a helm fit for royalty, he admitted. I've never seen the like. He reached out his hand. If I could just... Sturm drew his sword and held it to Flint's breast. Do not go nearer, Raceland cautioned. You must understand, Flint. You are a hill dwarf. Prince Grawlin takes you for the enemy he died fighting. Understand, Flint repeated angrily. Keeping a wary eye on Sturm, he raised his hands and backed away. I don't understand any of this. He glowered at Raceland. I agree with Tannis. This smacks of mage work. So it is, said Raceland coolly, but not mine. He explained that he had come across the helm quite by accident, and how Sturm had seen him holding it and become enamored of it. The helm's enchantment was undoubtedly searching for a warrior, and when Sturm picked it up, the spell took hold of him. The magic is not evil. It will do him no harm, beyond borrowing his body for a short time. When we reach Thorbarden, the prince's soul will be home. 
The magic will probably release the knight, and he will go back to being the same grim and dour Sturm Brightblade we've always known. Tannis looked back at Sturm, who still had his sword drawn, still keeping a baleful eye on Flint. You say the magic will probably release him, he said to Raislin. I did not cast the spell, Tannis. I have no way of knowing for certain. <coughs> he coughed again, paused, then said, Perhaps you don't understand the significance of this. Prince Grolin knows where to find the gates of Thorbarden. Great Reorx's beard, Flint exclaimed. The mage is right. I told you the key to Thorbarden lay in Skullcap. I never doubted you, said Tannis, though I have to admit I was thinking more along the lines of a map. He scratched his beard. The problem as I see it is how we keep the prince from killing Flint before we get there. The prince thinks we're mercenaries. We could tell the prince that Flint is our prisoner, Caraman suggested. You will do no such thing, Flint roared. What about an emissary coming to talk peace terms, Raceland said. Tannis looked at Flint, who felt called upon to argue, saying that no one in his right mind would believe it. At last, however, he gave a grudging nod. Tell him I'm a prince, too, a prince of the Nadar. Tannis hid a smile and went to explain matters to Prince Grolin, who apparently found this acceptable, for Sturm slid his sword back into its sheath and gave Flint a stiff bow. Now that that's settled, said Caraman, do you two have anything to eat? We ran out of everything we brought. I don't see how you can be hungry, said Raislin. He pressed his sleeve over his nose and mouth. The stench is appalling. We should at least move upwind. Tannis looked again around the ruined village, the pathetic, crumpled, and smoldering little bodies. Why would draconians do this? Why go to the trouble to slaughter gully dwarves? To silence them, of course, said Raislin. They stumbled across something they should not have, some secret of the draconians, or some secret the draconians were charged with protecting. Thus they had to die. I wonder what that secret is, Tannis mused, troubled. I doubt we will ever know, Raceland said, shrugging. They left the village, returning to the road that led up the mountain to Thorbarden. I spoke a prayer over the poor gully dwarfs, said Tasselhoff solemnly, coming up to walk beside Tannis. A prayer Elistan taught me. I commenced their souls to Paladine. Commended, Tannis corrected, commended their souls. That, too, said Tass, sighing. It was good of you to think of that, said Tannis. None of the rest of us did. You're busy thinking big things, said Tass. I keep track of the small stuff. By the way, said Tannis, a sudden thought striking him, I left you back in camp. How did you come to be with Raceland, Sturm, and Caraman? I thought I told you to keep watch over Tika. Oh, I did, said Tass. Wait till you hear. He launched into the tale, to which Tannis listened with increasing grimness. Where's Tika? Why isn't she with you? She went back to Warren Riverwind, said Tasselhoff cheerfully. Alone? Tannis turned to look at Caraman, who was trying unsuccessfully to hide his big body behind that of his twin. She sneaked off in the night, Tannis, Caraman said defensively. Didn't she race? We didn't know she left. You could have gone after her, 
Tannis said sternly. Yes, we could have, said Raceland smoothly. And then where would you be, half-elven, wandering about the mountains searching for the way inside Thorbarden? Tika was in no danger. The route we traveled was one known only to us. I hope so, said Tannis grimly. He walked on ahead, biting back the angry words that would have done no good. He had known Raislin and Caraman for many years, and he knew the twins had a bond that could not be broken, an unhealthy bond, or so he had always considered it, but it was not his place to say anything. He had been hoping that the romance blossoming between Tika and Caraman would give the big man strength enough to break free of his brother's death grip. Apparently not. Tannis had no idea of what had happened back in Skullcap, but he guessed from the unhappy look Caraman had given his twin that Tika had tried to persuade Caraman to go with her, and Raceland had prevented it. If anything happens to her, I will take it out of Raceland's hide, Tannis muttered to himself. At least Tika had had sense enough to carry the warning to Riverwind. He hoped she had reached the refugees in time and that they would heed the warning and escape. He could not go back there now, much as he would have liked to. His mission to Thorbarden had just become eight hundred times more urgent. Flint marched along at the rear, following after Sturm, unable to take his eyes from the knight and the marvelous helm he wore, or rather, according to Raceland, the helm that wore him. The dwarf did not trust magic of any kind, especially magic that had anything to do with Raceland, and no one would ever persuade him that this was not somehow Raceland's doing. Flint was forced to admit that something had happened to change Sturm. The knight could speak a few words of dwarven learned from Flint over time, but not many. He certainly could not speak the language of Thorbarden that was slightly different from the language of the hill dwarves. After they made camp, Tannis asked the prince to describe the route to Thorbarden. Prince Grawlin readily did so, speaking of a ridgeline they would follow up the mountain. He told them how far they would travel and how to locate the secret gate, though he would not tell them what to do to open it when they found it. Tannis looked to Flint for verification. Flint did not know specifically which ridge the prince meant, but it did sound plausible, though he didn't say as much. All the dwarf would say, grumbling, was that he supposed they'd find out the truth of the matter tomorrow, and he wished Tannis would let them get some rest. As Flint lay down, he looked into the sky, searching the heavens, until he found the red star that was the fire of Reorks, forger of the world. Flint found he liked the idea of being an emissary. He had protested, of course, when Raceland first proposed it, simply because it was Raceland, but the dwarf had not protested too strongly. He'd given in without much of a fuss. The thought came to him, What if I am truly an emissary? What if I am the dwarf to bring the warring clans together at last? He lay awake a long time, watching the sparks fly across the sky as the god went about his eternal task of forging creation, and he saw himself as one of those sparks, only his light would shine forever. 18. Leaving the Valley, Treacherous Trail, The Keystone the first day's travel for the refugees had been relatively easy. They had not gone far on the second day before traveling grew more difficult. 
The trail wended its way upward, and as it did so, it grew steeper, more narrow, until at last it devolved into a ribbon-thin path with sheer wall on one side and a terrifying drop of hundreds of feet onto the rocks on the other. Beyond lay the pass. They were almost there, but they had to cross this first. They would have to walk this perilous part of the trail single file, and river wind called a halt. Many were already terrified at just the sight of the precipice and the fall so close to their feet. Among these, as Tanis had foreseen, was Goldmoon. She had been born and raised on the plains of dust, a flat and featureless land stretching endlessly for miles with nothing between her and the glorious sky. This world of mountains and valleys was new to Goldmoon, and she had not grown used to it. River wind had been up and down the line encouraging the others when one of the plainsmen came running for him. It is Goldmoon, the man said. You had better come. The plainsman found his wife with her back pressed against the side of the cliff, her face deathly pale, trembling in terror. He approached her, and the hand that seized hold of him and gripped him like death was freezing cold. She was at the head of the line. He had not forgotten her terror of high places, and he had tried to persuade her to walk at the end, but she would have none of it. She was cured of that, she said, and she had walked forward confidently. She might have made it, for the distance was not far, but she committed the fatal error of looking down. She could see herself plunging through the air, landing on the rock-strewn ground, bones breaking, skull crushed, blood spattering the stones and pooling beneath her broken body. I'm sorry, but I cannot do this, husband, she said in a low voice. When he urged her gently forward, she went stiff. Give me a few moments. Gold moon he said softly, looking back down the trail where the line of refugees stood waiting. Others are watching you, looking to you for courage. She stared at him pleadingly. I want to go. I know I must go, but I can't move. She glanced over the edge at the sheer side of the cliff face, the rocks and trees and the valley that seemed so far, far below her feet, and she shuddered and shut her eyes again. Don't look down, he counseled. Look up. Look ahead. See that V-shape cut up there? That is the pass through the mountain. We have only to cross that and we are on the other side. Goldmoon looked, shook her head, and pressed her back against the wall. Have you prayed to the gods for courage? Riverwind asked his wife. Goldmoon gave him a tremulous smile. The courage of Missacle is in my heart, husband, but it has yet to make its way to my feet. He loved her very much at that moment, and he kissed her cheek. She flung her arms around him, clasping him so tightly that she nearly cut off his breathing. He led her back off the trail onto solid ground and wondered what he was going to do. There would be others, like his wife, who would find this trail difficult, if not impossible, to walk. He had to think how to help them. He told the people to stop to rest while he considered this problem. As he was pondering, one of the advanced scouts came hastening back down the trail. He motioned to Riverwind. We have found something strange, the plainsman reported. Up ahead, at the opening to the pass, the dwarf's pickaxe lies on the ground. Perhaps it grew too heavy for him to carry, he suggested. The scout smiled and shook his head. I have no great love for dwarves, as you know, chieftain, but I never yet met the dwarf who could not carry the weight of this mountain on his back if he were so minded. It is not likely that he would leave behind a pickaxe. Unless there was some good cause, Riverwind said thoughtfully. 
There is nothing else? Nothing to suggest he and Tannis were attacked or met with some other terrible fate? If there had been fighting, we would see signs of a battle. But there's no blood on the stones, no gouges in the dirt, and no packs or other pieces of equipment left behind. To my mind, the pickaxe was left deliberately, as some sort of sign. But what it means, none of us can say. Leave it where it is, said Riverwind. Let no man touch it. I'll come look at it. Perhaps I can read this puzzle. The plainsman nodded and returned to his fellows. The scout, whose name was Eagle Talon, walked the trail with the sure-footed ease of a mountain lion. River wind watched him go and eyed the trail ahead. It widened in some places, enough for two or even three people to walk abreast. He could post men like Eagle Talon, who had no problem with the heights, at each of those places, prepared to offer a strong arm and reassuring hand to those who made their way along the path. Riverwind explained his plan and called for volunteers, choosing men who were stout, sturdy, and had no fear of the dizzying heights, posting them at various points along the trail. He went to Goldmoon, told her what she should do, and indicated the first man who stood on a ledge only a few feet away, his hand outstretched. You just have to cross a short distance on your own, he said to her. Don't look down. Keep your back to the wall and look only at Nighthawk. Goldmoon gave a tremulous nod. She had to do this. Her husband was counting on her. She whispered the name of the goddess. Then, shivering, she edged her way along the trail, moving her feet an inch at a time. Her heart pounded in her chest. Her mouth was dry as stone. She made it and clasped Nighthawk's hand with convulsive strength. He helped her sidle past him, holding on to her firmly and speaking to her encouragingly. The next man was farther away, but she looked back at Riverwind and smiled a triumphant, though shaky smile, and crept on. Riverwind was proud of her. His plan seemed to be working, but it was slow going, so very slow. Some of the people would have no difficulty, of course. Marita, coming after Goldmoon, traveled the trail with confidence, waving away Nighthawk's helping hand. Others, like Goldmoon, hung on for dear life. Some could not stand, but were forced to crawl along on their hands and knees. At this rate, it would take all day or longer for the people to reach the pass. Leaving Alistan in charge, Riverwind went on ahead to see for himself the pickaxe the dwarf had unaccountably left behind. Riverwind agreed with Eagle Talon. The axe had been left here deliberately. He wondered why. Not to mark the trail, which was obvious at this point. He noticed the striped rock, different from the others around it, and he saw how the point of the axe rested on the rock. Not just on the rock, he realized, squatting down to look at it more closely. The point was actually wedged in gently beneath the rock. He stood up, arms folded across his chest, looking intently all around, up and down the mountainside. His scouts had traversed the cut and returned to say that it did indeed cross the mountain— they had found Tannis's markers on the other side. What then did this sign mean? That it was important, he had no doubt. At least, he thought, watching the slow progress of the refugees up the trail, I have time to figure it out. He was not to have as much time as he thought. Late in the afternoon, when the sun began to sink, blanketing the trail in shadow, Riverwind called a halt to the ascent. He was pleased with the progress they had made, 
Only about a hundred more people had yet to make the treacherous walk up the trail to the pass. They had not lost a single person, though there had been heart-stopping moments as feet slipped and hands lost their grip, or when a boy froze on the trail, unable to move, and one of the men had to edge his way down to rescue him. Those who had crossed were now preparing to spend the night in the pass, relieved that this part of the trip was over, and speaking hopefully that the worst was behind them. Riverwind scouts reported that they had found what appeared to be an ancient dwarven road. The going would be easier from now on. Riverwind calculated that they would be through the pass by mid-morning. Some of those who had not yet dared the trail would require more time, for among them were several who had not found the courage to even make the attempt. They had taken some comfort in the fact that their fellows had managed to cross without incident, and told Riverwind they thought they could do so themselves after a night's rest. Everyone was in good spirits, preparing to make camp for the night. Lorana and Elistan had both offered to remain with this group, and Riverwind left them, confident that the people were in good hands. The evening was cold, and camping among the rocks was far from comfortable. Riverwind discouraged the refugees from building fires. Light on the mountain would show up like a beacon in the darkness. The people wrapped themselves in cloaks and blankets and huddled together for warmth, wedging themselves in among the rocks and boulders as best they could, prepared to spend an uncomfortable and cheerless night. Riverwind walked the rounds, spoke with those on guard duty, made certain they were awake and alert. All the while, he kept wondering about the pickaxe. The last thing he did before going to bed was to stand over the pickaxe, pondering it by the cold light of the stars, wondering what it meant. Riverwind was wakened by a frightened cry from his wife. He woke to find Goldmoon clutching him by the shoulder. Something is out there. He felt it, too, and so did many others, for he heard people crying out and stirring restlessly around him. Riverwind was on his feet when one of the guards came running. Dragons, he said softly, urgently, keeping his voice down, flying over the mountains. What is it? people asked fearfully, as Riverwind accompanied the guard out of the pass and into an open area where he could see. He looked to the north. A shudder went through him. Dark wings obliterated the stars, dragons at the far end of the valley. They flew slowly, their wings making wide, sweeping motions, as though the beasts carried a burden and were struggling to remain airborne. River wind was reminded of the struggles made by a hawk trying to carry off a prairie rabbit. Dragon fear crept over him, but he recognized it now and refused to give in to it. He was about to summon his warriors when he heard footfalls, and turning, he found his people gathered around him, silent and expectant, awaiting his orders. This is the attack on our camp Tika warned us about, he said, marveling at his own calm. I do not think the dragons know we have left. Tell the people they must remain quiet, and they must keep hidden. Their lives depend on it. A baby's wail could give us away. Goldmoon hastened away, in company with some of the other plainsmen, and began explaining the danger. Here and there a child whimpered. There were moans and stifled cries as the dragon fear spread. But Goldmoon and others were on hand to provide comfort with prayers to the gods. Soon silence, like a heavy, smothering blanket, settled over the camp. People crouched among the rocks and boulders in the shadow of the pass and clasped their children to their hearts, waiting. The dragons reached a point in the sky above the burned-out grove. 
Lunatari was half full this night, and her light shone on red scales and on a helmed figure riding the lead dragon. Riverwind recognized the horned helm of Lord Verminard. Behind him flew four more red dragons. As Riverwind watched, the flight of the dragons slowed. They began to perform slow and laborious turns in midair, their flight now taking them over the caves where the refugees had made their home. These were not the graceful, wheeling red dragons Riverwind had seen battling in the skies over Pax Tharkas. These dragons flew ponderously, and he once again had the impression they carried a heavy load. Gilthanus appeared at his elbow. What of Lorana and the people on the other side of the trail? he asked. Riverwind had been thinking of Hederick and those who had remained behind, and he could only shake his head, meaning that for them there was no hope. Then he realized this was not what Gilthanus meant. He meant those who had not yet ventured along the trail. They were camped out in the open, exposed on the side of the mountain, with no shelter, nowhere to conceal themselves. We have to get them across, Gilthanus urged. In the darkness, it's too risky. Riverwind shook his head. We must hope the dragons will be content to attack the caves and not think to come this way. He braced himself, prepared to watch the dragons breathe fire on the caves. But that did not happen. Instead, the dragons continued to circle the valley, flying lower and lower, spiraling down in formation. The dragon-bearing Verminard remained hovering overhead, watching from above. Riverwind was puzzled by this, and then he saw something even more puzzling. Bundles were falling off the backs of the dragons. At least that's how it appeared. Riverwind could not imagine what the dragons were dropping, and then he sucked in his breath in horror. These were not bundles. They were draconians, and they were leaping off the dragons' backs. He could see the monsters' wings spread as they jumped, see the moonlight glint on their scaly hides and gleam off the tips of their swords. The draconians' wings slowed their descent, giving them the ability to glide to a landing once they reached the ground. The draconians were not adept at dragon-jumping, or so it appeared. Some fell headlong into the thick stands of trees, and many plunged, kicking and flailing, into the stream. Howls of rage split the frosty air. He could hear orders being shouted by those on the ground as officers tried to sort through the confusion, find their men, and form them into ranks. That would happen soon enough. The draconians would march up to the caves and find their prey was gone. They would come searching for them. You're right, he said to Gilthanus. We must get the others across. He shook his head softly. The gods help us. Walking the steep and narrow path had been difficult and frightening by day. Now he was going to ask these people to walk it by night, and they must do so in the darkness and in silence. Riverwind made his way back across the treacherous trail and found Elistan and Lorana waiting for him. Elistan forestalled him. We have already roused everyone, and they are ready. Poor Hedrick, Lorana said quietly, watching the draconians start to swarm into the hills. Riverwind found it difficult to dredge up any pity for that man, or those deluded enough to trust him. Nor did he have time to waste thinking about him. He looked at the assembled group. Their pale faces glimmered white in the darkness, but all were quiet, prepared. Riverwind hated to do what he had to do next, but there was no choice. We must bind cloths around their mouths. Elistan and Lorana both stared at him, perhaps wondering if he'd gone mad. I don't understand, Lorana began. Silence is our only hope of escaping, Riverwind explained. 
If someone should fall, the draconians might hear his screams. Lorana blanched, covering her mouth with her hand. Of course, Elistan said quietly, and hurried off. Are you all right? he asked Lorana. Yes, she managed faintly. Good. River wind was brisk, matter of fact. We have to get them started now. No time to waste. The draconians will attack the caves, but it won't take them long to figure out we're gone. Then they'll come looking for us. Will we be safe in the pass? Lorana asked. I hope so, Riverwind replied, trying to reassure himself as much as her. We did not know the pass was there, and we have lived here for months. With luck and help from the gods, the draconians will not find us. If they do, we can defend ourselves against attack. He stopped talking, sucked in a breath. He saw in dazzling brilliance, as though lightning had streaked across his mind, the pickaxe lying beneath the striped rock that did not belong there. Make haste, he told Lorana. Keep them moving. Don't let anyone stop. He turned away, then turned back. If anyone balks, he must remain behind. We don't have time to mollycoddle people. Keep everyone moving. He made his own way back across the treacherous trail thinking, as he did so, that it was actually easier to cross in the darkness. He couldn't see how far he had to fall, or the sharp rocks waiting to break his body. The men who had done this same task today took up their places again, standing at intervals, ready to assist those who were already beginning to cross. Elistan remained at the start, saying reassuring words and giving Paladine's blessing to all. Gags bound around their mouths, the people began to edge their way along the path. Riverwind paused to glance back in the direction of the camp. Some of the Draconians were now running toward the caves. Once they reached the living area, they would be thrown into confusion when they found their victims were gone. They would think the people had retreated deeper into the caves, and they would search the tunnels and passages. Eventually, the Draconians would realize the truth. The caves had been abandoned. Verminard knew the refugees could not go north. The most logical route lay to the south. That's where he would look first. River Wind glanced to the east, wondering how many hours they had until daylight. He did not think he had many. Come with me, he said to his warriors. You won't need your weapons. You need pickaxes. And bring me some of the men who worked in the mines. The first wave of draconians broke on the cliffs where the refugees had once dwelt. Howls meant to strike fear into the hearts of their victims changed to curses as they entered cave after cave and found crude furniture, toys and clothes, and stores of food and water the refugees had been forced to leave behind. Riverwind took the miners to where Flint had left the pickaxe. He showed them the axe and the striped rock, explaining to them what he thought the dwarf was trying to tell them. The miners examined the area as best they could by moonlight and starlight, agreeing that this rock was a keystone, but whether it would work or not they could not say. The crossing proceeded, though with agonizing slowness. River wind kept watch on the sky. There was as yet no light visible, but the stars were starting to fade. The last few people were creeping across. One, a young woman, staggered and fell to the ground. Tears streamed down her cheeks and she was shaking, but she had not made a sound. Gold Moon took hold of her and led her away.